This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Anthony Urcioli filling in for Scott Thompson. What's ahead? Andrew Rosser, president of Pride London, chimes in. Hamilton LGBTQ community clashing with police, with the mayor. London, one of the biggest celebrations in the country, per capita anyway. How do they get it right? Also, on that topic, Lil Nas X comes out over the weekend, or did he? Eric Elper, publicist, music commentator, content creator, joins us. And how can cities become more walkable, and how is it better for the economy? Jeff Speck, author of Walkability, City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places, joins us as well. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I have the timeline written out of this whole controversy with not even controversy but let's say saga between the lgbtq2 community um the city of hamilton i mean the mayor counselors police and uh, it's gotten ugly at times violence arrests um harassment and i don't need to uh, we we have our guest on the phone i don't want to make him wait too long but i just want to give you a bit of a background here maybe we'll do a quick timeline. This goes back two years ago. The city developed a transgender and gender nonconforming protocol, and it came in response to a human rights ruling in favor of a transgender woman who tried to use the women's washroom at the McNabb bus terminal here in downtown Hamilton. Uh, the city, the committee says it's been slow to implement the protocol. So that, that's kind of where, I mean, I, it's not officially where it started, but the commi- the LGBTQ community uh, committee they weren't happy with how long it took to get to that point. Um, and then, you know, somewhat recently, the city employs the former head of a white supremacist organization in its IT department. City says it doesn't know. Details are kind of murky. I'm not even sure where we stand with that. Is he still working with the city? I don't even know. Uh, so the city appointed the retired president of, of a sign company to the Hamilton Police Services Board. Critics said it was a missed opportunity for some diversity, not just um, you know, racially, but, you know, maybe a member of a group that is, uh, you know, underprivileged in that sense. So then these uh, geeks in yellow vests start uh, demonstrating in front of City Hall every Saturday, and that just kind of picks, that that really gets the ball rolling. Uh, the committee told the city it didn't want the pride flag raised, and instead of a flag raising ceremony, they wanted a community conversation. Well, the city raised the flag anyway, minus the ceremony. The committee held a, a community conversation, but Mayor Fred Eisenberger did not attend it, nor did he attend June 15th Pride and Gage Park. So police, as we know, weren't allowed to set up a recruiting booth at the event at the request of uh, Pride. So then at the festivities, violence broke out when those same guys in, in yellow vests and uh, I'll use, you can't see them, but I'm using little uh, quotation marks, uh, Christian extremists were there and it got violent. Um Pride Hamilton say police took too long to, to intervene. Uh, Mayor Eisenberger, who chairs the police board, called that a false narrative on Twitter. That opened Eisenberger up to more criticism. Police chief was here on CHML with Bill Kelly and reminded everyone that Pride organizers didn't want police there with a booth to begin with, which 
gave off this vibe. He didn't say it directly, but it kind of gives off that feeling of, oh, so it's our fault that we didn't allow them on the premises. That's why um, these people were allowed to, to come and assault us. And then it's, I mean, it's, it's there's a lot more. I mean, we could go on all show. Um, and let's just say it kind of culminated with uh, the protesters showing up, LGBTQ protesters showing up at the mayor's home a few days ago in the morning, uh, bothering him, his family, and his neighbors, which I thought was awful. But uh, since then, Hamilton's mayor has appointed two special advisors to the LGBTQ2 uh, causes Deirdre Pike and Cole Gately to help develop a community-wide action plan to address discrimination. All right, this is where we're at, and there's probably a lot more to go. And I'm going to bring in our guest now. Um, Andrew Rosser, sorry to keep you waiting. No, no problem. Thanks I just I had to give the background there because otherwise, wh- where we're going, you're the president of Pride London, and I'm sure you heard uh, my kind of timeline there, and I know you've done some research yourself. Have you been following any of the ongoings here in Hamilton? I have been following a bit. I definitely uh, didn't know about all of the uh, the issues, and I didn't. Um, I hadn't heard about the recent protests at the mayor's house, uh, but definitely following a bit about the police uh, participation in Pride, and that's really what we've heard a lot about. Yeah, and it's you know Pride London, and there's a reason I specifically came to London um, for this topic because I hear from so many people that are from the area that have been to the area. Um, you guys do a fantastic job there, and not only as a committee, the Pride London committee, also just the the community in general. I mean, I've seen numbers anywhere from well upwards of thirty thousand people over a weekend attending Pride festivities. You have the parade. I know our uh, sister station out in London. Uh, 980 is uh, participates in that parade as well, so it's it's a big deal. But you've had some of these controversies yourself, and maybe you don't see them as controversies, but others did with you know police, uh, uniform police officers. How did you get from that to th- like how how did you go through that and still make it work? Basically, well, um, I think it would be silly for me to say that we that we've made it work. Um, I I definitely think maybe that we've we've made some better progress than other cities, um, uh, but it's still an ongoing issue, and I think it's still something that we're, we're constantly battling. Um, you know, this year marks the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, which really is the modern, uh, the start to the modern Pride movement. And we have to remember that that was a, that was a, uh, a protest and a riot against police. Um, and then, so when I got involved in Pride, you know, I, I guess 12, 12-ish years ago, just as a volunteer and then as vice president and now president, um, I got involved really to talk about human rights issues as far as just educating people on what it means to be gay and lesbian and trans. Um, I think myself and, and just with the Pride movement, it, we've been a little ignorant um, in the fact that we've forgotten about a lot of communities that are that fall under this umbrella, and uh, and really we're doing work to kind of catch up in a lot of ways. Um, for us in London, you know, we have an all-white board, which is is a problem. Uh, we don't have, or we did, sorry, have an all-white board until this last year, um, and you know that's a problem. It's hard to find d- diversity. Um, because you also don't want to tokenize people. You want to make it uh, feel acceptable for everyone to be involved. Um, so, you know, we're struggling with that, but we, we keep working on it. 
I'm a firm believer in having conversations. So as far as the police issue goes, we've always been open to having conversations with them. Um, and, and we're also listening to our community. Our community came out very loud and, and strong about them uh, participating in uniform. Um, and so we've, we've listened. We've had the diversity officer, the police chief, come out to some of these meetings and listen. And I think that's really, that's maybe why we've been more successful in our approach is just because we've had, uh, we've had people in those leadership roles willing to listen as well. Andrew Rosser is with us, the president of uh, Pride London, who has just told us that they have, you know, you guys have similar issues that we've had in, in Hamilton. And I, I think, you know, and, and maybe this is ignorance on my part, but, you know, when I see 30,000 people attending festivities and these, these this giant parade that we don't we don't even have a parade in Hamilton anymore because last time we did, it was a while ago, it, it was... It just happened to coincide with, I can't remember if it was the Euro Cup or, or Soccer Cup, but uh, it just so happened that the, the parade route went through an area where soccer fans were celebrating a victory and the, some fans attacked members of the, the, the parade. The, the, I mean, there's a, it's a horrible story and I don't need to get into detail, but you know, last time we had a pride parade, there was violence and so they haven't done one since. So I think I look at Pride London as doing better than than Hamilton and that's not an attack on anyone individually in this city because it is a collective thing and that kind of leads me to my next question is how do you how do you take and I, I, you might not see yourself as a leader but how do you take a leadership role and speak for a group that is so diverse because your experience isn't the same as someone who's trans or uh, a racial minority how do you elect uh, or appoint leaders to represent such a diverse group of individuals? Well, I think that's, that's kind of the big question, and how, and how do we do that? I think for a lot of us, when we talk about um, the, we used to say, you know, the LGBT2Q plus uh, community, and over the last few years, I've really tried to change that narrative to be LGBT2Q plus communities, plural, because really my experience as a gay man, as a gay white cisgender man, um, is very different than somebody that is trans, uh, somebody that's a person of color, somebody with a disability. You know, there's so many different things that make up who we are. And then you put all of these under this big umbrella. There's nobody that can speak for any one of our uh, experiences. I think what's important is is that we we allow every experience to be talked about. Um, and I think we're trying here in London to keep those conversations open. Um, it's it's hard, though, because you're never going to please everybody. And I think um, as long as you keep uh, keep the conversation lines open, uh, keep working to to kind of include everybody. But, uh, you know, there's lots of people that are still not happy about our decisions in London. They would prefer to see the police not participate at all. Um, they participate out of uniform. And what we heard from members of our community is that that's the, the uniform was the, and the cruiser in the, in the, in the march or in the parade was the problem. So we've allowed the London police services to take part out of uniform, um, which is still a controversial issue for a lot of people. Yeah, that that's a tough one for 
most, I think, to, and I, well, maybe I shouldn't say most, but for a lot of people to, to understand, you know, I'm, I'm in this position where, you know, I, I have gay family members and I have police in my family and everyone seems to get along and, and I'm, I'm in this world where there, there's no conflict, you know, inner conflict. But I do know this is, the, the uniform thing is a sticking point. Can you just, and I'm sure you've had to go through this so many times, so I apologize in advance, but maybe just explain to the people that just still don't get it. Why is the uniform an, an issue for members of the LGBTQ community? So, yeah, I think it's really important to understand. And I can't, I'm, I am white, so I don't have the experience, lived experience. And, you know, I've talked about this a lot, so I feel like I have some knowledge on it, but I definitely don't have all the knowledge on it. So I just want to kind of preface it with that. Um, but the the uniform and what it means, it stems back to Stonewall. It stems back to, um, you know, the way people are treated, the systemic issues surrounding people of color, the way that they are unfairly targeted um, by police in, in many communities um, in this in this country, as well as many other countries. We still have a disproportionately, uh, or sorry, people of color, indigenous people are still disproportionately affected by um, police officers, and uh, and things like carding are still an issue in our communities. We still, um, our indigenous communities are still not supported by the police like they should be. Um, so all of these little things. Um, you know, because you can be Indigenous and part of our community, you can be a person of colour as part of our community. So all these little systemic issues with policing, um, you know, are important to our whole community. We all need to be stepping up and saying, wait a minute, we support our communities and we're going to make a change. Um, by working with police, yes, uh, I always say that the police are not going anywhere. The institution of policing isn't going to go anywhere, but we have to work to change it and make sure that it works for all of our communities because that's what they're there for. And I think that's maybe some of the most frustrating parts of what's come out of Hamilton is what the police chief said about, you know, if we were invited, then we would have maybe been quick to respond. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a, a horrible statement. And I would, uh, I would hope that their board and, and people in his, uh, in the Hamilton police services should be challenging him on that statement. Yeah, it it just it didn't it didn't sound good. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, he can say he meant to say this or that, but just the, the audio is there, the the clip is there, the quotes there, and it does sound like you're blaming the the victims in this case, which were you know the the individuals, people. I, I think, and I, I've grown tired of this, and I know you have. Um, but the you know, there's good and bad on both sides type argument, and we've had that thrown around a couple times by even city councilors because we've had this issue in Hamilton with yellow vests you know, uh, holding weekly rallies at City Hall and being allowed to. And, I mean, have you had to deal with this alt-right issue in London? Has it crept up? We've had the same protesters okay. in London. Thankfully, you know, they're not as, uh, they haven't been as violent. I'm definitely, you know, meeting with police ahead of this um, parade again because I think they're they're more coordinated in their efforts to see, you know, neo-Nazis um you know, coming together in Detroit and in Hamilton, and then to see people in tactical vests and and equipment in the Eaton Center, mm -hmm. like that's very scary. Um, the one thing I really want to make a distinction because 
and this is something I, I feel like I'm, it's a broken record that I'm saying, but the police institutions are there to keep everyone safe, regardless of what event it is, regardless of who's hosting the event, or regardless of whether they get a personal invite to the event. So the issue is not around police keeping us safe. That's their job. They have to do that, regardless of whether we let them set up a booth, walk in our parade, participate in our dance or whatever. They have to keep us safe. That's their job. So mm-hmm. I don't, I really think it's important that we make the distinction that police participation and pride is a separate issue from their job as keeping us safe as their duty. We pay taxes for that. I pay to close down the street, to have our, our police cruisers close down all the intersections. They're there to keep us safe, and they'll continue to do that regardless of whether they're in our parade or not. Andrew Rosser, well said. President of Pride London, I, I wish we had more time. I, I mean, we could talk about this for a while, and I'm sure this is going to come up again at some point, and maybe we'll be back in contact. But thanks so much for doing this. No problem. Thanks for having me. All right. Andrew Rosser, uh, President of Pride London. Stop with the both sides. Don't even... I mean, I have, I have stats. I'm ready with stats on alt-right versus this fake... Well, it's not fake outrage, but this narrative of Antifa running amok and hurting and killing. And I mean, it's ridiculous. They they don't even compare. It's two different worlds. It's there's numbers to back it up. Maybe we'll delve more into that uh, tomorrow because, again, this is going to be ongoing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lil Nas X making, he's got it, you know, he's got it right. He's figured it out. I'm a big fan of Lil Nas X. Everything, everything, not only, I think, the, I mean, the music's good even before, you know, Billy Ray got involved. Uh, even before that, I like his new stuff. I like Panini. And he does it right because he's got this, he's young, he's 20, he's got the, he's got the social media game down. And he just masterfully, and this is, this is going to sound weird. He masterfully came out as gay over the weekend. Now, how does someone masterfully do that? He incorporated it into his his music, into his album art. It was very just, I mean, it it just, everything about it, I don't know if he's being advised or not, if you're someone helping him, but if it's all him, I mean, this guy may be a marketing genius. Speaking of geniuses, it was the easiest segue to do because I already said the word uh, genius. Not that he's not, but uh, Eric Alper joins us, publicist, music commentator, content creator. Eric, welcome to the show. Oh, look at me being called a genius. Yeah, well, luckily for you, that's the last word I said, and I wanted to be able to segue. <laughs> I hear you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I, you know, I got to, I, I, I was saying, I'm not sure if you heard it or not, but I was just, I'm, I'm a big fan of Lil Nas X, and I, I do like the music, but there's, there's something about him where, he, you know, he has it, and he's got the social media game down. I don't know if he has people helping him or not, but he's mastered um, social media, just this era of music. Um, and then, you know, he comes out as gay over the weekend, which, 
you know, I mean, we we can Do get it. He did. Pardon? Do you think he did? He didn't. Do you really think he did? What do you mean? Well, see, I don't know. Oh, where's it? I like this. Where's this going? I like this. Well, here's here's what I've noticed in the last seventy two hours, and this is not to knock anybody whatsoever out there. Whoever wants to post whatever they want to post, I'm kind of a little bit surprised at this day and age at just the sheer amount of heterosexual celebrities and artists that are joining the gay pride parades around the world. And Mm. there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But he didn't actually say that he was gay. All he said was, if you listen to the lyrics of a song, of a specific song, and if you look at the album cover, which has a couple of buildings in the background in a nighttime sky, um, 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 you know, visual, there's one building specifically that is in pride colors, which is great. That doesn't necessarily mean that I think, I think he could come out and say, look, you know, this is the media again, switching my story. I just came out as... Um, as a champion of gay rights, he there was a than I'm gay. There was one post he made. Uh, it was just because I'm gay doesn't mean I ain't I ain't straight or something like that. And I think that's maybe the closest he's come to actually tweeting out that he's gay. That's interesting. Okay, that part I didn't know. Yeah, I only saw there was a couple of tweets specifically about him. Um, uh, uh, kind of mentioning yeah. a couple of. of, of of you know gay visuals or or you know LGBTQ positive um, plus visuals on there. So okay, good for him. But but I mean but it, <laughs> no but it's interesting because but it still ties into you know the way again who I'm sure I mean he does have a team because he has a team of writers and he does have a team. Uh, absolutely, it was it was just as calculated as anything else that he. Yeah, done. it was so. Cal- I mean, and I know people might say, oh, he's just you know he's kind of profiting or getting attention off of you know pride and this and that, but. I mean, he it just it worked well. Like it, it blew up, like he probably thought it would. And yeah, um, but it just the, the way it happened, it was just kind of it was also you know subtle, like you said. It, it was a lot of symbolism before he actually tweeted that he was gay, and it just. Mm. I mean, this was definitely calculated, but it just I don't know. It worked. Yeah, you know one one thing that I think people may not truly realize is how long it takes to set up something in the entertainment industry when you are when you are that big or that when you're signed to a, a very big label like a Universal or Sony or Warner or even if you're an actor or an actress on a big budget production where you're almost done that movie almost a year before we even hear about it. Um, so when Lil Nas X kind of came out on TikTok and got discovered on that social media platform. Um, and then the song was being used, um, Old Town Road was being used by, you know, thousands and thousands of, of teenagers around the world. I'm not convinced that he wasn't already signed even at that aspect, even though that the rest of the industry was kind of hearing, well, he's meeting with this record label and this big management company and, and he's signing for like $20 million with these people. I'm not convinced that that actually wasn't part of the story either because I'm mm. just a little bit cynical that way. I don't have any special time for information, but I just get the feeling like now there is absolutely at least a few dozen people monitoring his every move in every step to make sure that their investment um, in him is going to be um, is going to be you know 
uh, populated with profit. I mean, this is not just one of the biggest songs of the summer. I mean, because it already is. It's not just one of the biggest songs of the year. This is, Old Town Road right now is probably one of the biggest songs of the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just how big this song is and how completely dominant it is of the charts. Well, and you know what's interesting? And the reason I started hearing about Lil Nas X is because of the controversies. I, I, didn't, I hadn't heard the song yet, and this is before you know Billy Ray Cyrus got on the track, although he's a writer on the song, I believe. So yeah. he's been involved the whole way. I mean, there's like four, isn't someone, who else? There's some big names that, are uh, got writing credits for that song. I mean, I think I saw like five or six. Yeah, because when the song first came out, it was just basically a one minute fifty second version of Old Town Road, and right. it was no more than uh, you know your average kind of country song. But he was using a sample of Trent Reznor's Nine Inch Nails uh, song from about a decade ago, and nobody really thought the wiser of it because it right. was just like an underground track. It wasn't big at all. Then it started to kind of blow up on social media really, really quickly. And uh, he put out the call for Miley Cyrus to ask her dad, Billy Ray Cyrus, if he would actually come and sing on the track and do a duet. Well, 48 hours later, Billy Ray Cyrus answered the call, and they're in a studio doing a remix of the song not even two weeks later. Once that song gets released, that's when it blows up, because they serviced it to, or, or then he signed a management deal and a record label sometime in between that. But they serviced not only urban radio, which was like, you know, pop radio, hit radio, but they serviced country radio. And country radio refused to have anything to do with the song, even though it had Billy Ray Cyrus on it, um, because they deemed it to be a hip-hop track rather than a country music song. And that's when it started to get in the mainstream media of Time Magazine and Newsweek and right. people that would never, ever cover urban music or Billy Ray Cyrus. Right, are starting to put the song and the and the content on the front page of their newspaper. Yeah, and that's when when the and when I mentioned the controversy I'm referring to, is, of course, right off. I mean, it became it, it was the first and correct me if I'm wrong, but on the Billboard charts, it was the first time a track was on simultaneously the country and hip hop charts. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it was probably one one of the very first times where somebody's first single in the hip hop world. Um, began to hit number one. Um, and, you know, right now it owns something like nine of the 13 biggest streaming weeks in music history. So it, it is well, well, well over, um, you know, I think anybody's expectations of, I mean, this just isn't a track where, you know, you don't even have to be in the know. We're going to hear this song at every wedding in Bar Mitzvah mm-hmm. over the next 30 years. Yeah, well, and... And but I mean, and deeper into that controversy was, I mean, there was talks about just race and the fact that mm. you know I remember boycott Wrangler trending on Twitter one day, and I'm like, what's this about? And it turns out it's because Wrangler signed Lil Nas X to an endorsement deal, and yeah. and, and and people were saying, no, we don't all be you know, and, and let's you know, let's come clean here. The the, the country music scene, there are. Uh, roots in racism and to have a young mm. black man who's, you know, who does he think he is? He's coming in. He's His song's not even pure country. It's got this hip-hop, you know, this trap kind of sound to it. And who does this guy think he is trying to come in here and, and dominate our world? And so there was a lot of backlash there. And that's how I first heard about him. And I wonder, to have Lil Nas X specifically do this song, to have this kind of country hip-hop fused, uh, fused together, is that calculated, knowing that it was going to create a bit of a stir? Not at all. Okay. That I don't believe. Um, I believe in UFOs, but I mean, I believe, <laughs> um, but no, because I think that that 
um, I, I, the one thing that the record labels never want to do is bite the hands that feed them. Mm. And they never want to um, cross the line of dictating to any radio station or conglomerate of a company that owns many radio stations, especially in America. Um, they never want to tell them really what to do. They can pitch certain songs here and there, but I think at the end of the day, they don't want to cross that line because they know that these people who run the radio stations are pretty powerful. Um, I, I think to have the, the record labels suddenly get a backbone and a spine and a moral clause to be able to say, you know, we should change the way how America and especially country music fans care about the African-American and country music. It's not even in their sentiment of what's going to happen. They will gladly make sure, um, look, you know, going not necessarily always going off on a tangent, but country radio doesn't certainly play a lot of women, for instance. Mm. It's, it's, it's been kind of called out that almost nine and a half songs out of every ten are sung by a male. Um, and it doesn't, stop con- it doesn't stop record labels from wanting to sign female country artists, but if they wanted to and if they had that much push, they would have easily made that number 50-50 simply because it just makes good business sense to have women played on your radio station. Mm-hmm. Okay, and you mentioned um, at one point in there talking about the length of the songs. I, the, one, the first thing that stood out to me, and I love yeah. this because I'm always, I want things quick. I want everything just to the point, right to the point. All of his songs are under three minutes. Some are up just a little over one minute, a um, little over two minutes, a little Nas X we're talking about here. That seems, I, I was reading actually uh, Bob Lefset's newsletter, who's, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. long, long time in the business of just a journalist in the business, but um he mentioned the fact that this is this is kind of becoming a trend, and it's it's fitting in with the notion of our songs aren't going to be on albums anymore or CDs necessarily. They're going to be streamed. Um, so let's let's give them a two minute song. Let's give them a three minute song. It's kind of picking up some traction. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if anybody there thought um, that songs were getting shorter, um, they're right. It's actually gone down about twenty seconds in the last five years. It's the average time now. Or a song on the Billboard Hot 100 is just over three minutes and ten seconds, mm. which doesn't really seem like it's so short. But what happens is is that you end up with a song like Old Town Road, which is one minute and fifty seconds, um, and that enables not only radio stations to play more songs per hour, keeping people glued to their tele- to their radio station um, before the ads start. So it's in their benefit to do that. Um, but in a streaming world and in a world where teenagers are always kind of knocked for not having um, as, as, as much tendency to be able to concentrate and stay focused on something, this is a perfect track for them because they're in and out in two minutes. And that's exactly you know where the calculation of the popularity of the song actually does come from. The length of the time of the song and the content were entirely calculated to be manipulated and figured out how to get the maximum amount of spins out of it. And that's wow. exactly what Lil Nas X decided to do in the beginning, and that's exactly what he was able to achieve. I love it. I mean, I, I, I won't go see Avengers because I'm not sitting there for three hours for, for, for a movie. <laughs> but so that I, was a really big deal, right? Yeah. When that movie came out, it was kind of like know. three and a half hours, and people were like, wow, I remember so great. I remember when I was in elementary school and the Titanic came out, the big deal that it, you know, it was a little more than two hours, and it was this big deal. And I, I'm hoping for a two-hour movie. Movie now, um, 
Well, what's, what's amazing is that if you go through like the Beatles catalog, you right. see that their first three albums are filled with songs that are two minutes, 20 seconds. Mm. You know, it wasn't really until, you know, I think they started discovering drugs that, you know, hey, let's just make a four minute, five minute and even a seven minute song out of this. And that's where, where the whole psychedelic FM radio popularity right. came in, where FM radio wanted to play longer songs rather than shorter songs, because that was for pop music stations to do. And then you get a 60 minute fish song. So I, 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 there, there's different <laughs> well, extremes. Got in a oh, gosh. Both sides of it. Yeah. Uh, bef- before we go, I, I got to get because you have to explain this to me because I tried reading about it. Uh, what is this mess that Taylor Taylor Swift is always in the middle of something? Uh, yeah. Now there's an issue with with her whole uh, record label. Yeah. So what happens is is that um, for people who may not be aware, really quickly, um, m- most artists don't own their master recordings, meaning that when they go in the studio to record an album, the record label actually pays for that. So the artist doesn't take the risk. It's actually the record label. And what they do is that they say, well, we're going to pay for this, but we're going to own the master recordings of it. Um, Taylor Swift's record label and manager is called Big Machine. And Big Machine was trying to do deals over the last number of months to sell the company to the highest bidder. Um, It turned out that not only were they negotiating with everybody, but they were also negotiating with Scooter Braun, who just happens to manage Justin Bieber on Kanye West, among many, many others. It came out over the weekend that Scooter Braun bought Big Machine and all of Taylor Swift's um, uh, master recordings. And Taylor Swift has had three hundred million dollars. And Taylor Swift has had feuds with Bieber and Kanye as well. Both exactly, and so now the the entire industry is forced to kind of pick sides because not only is it like well. Taylor Swift stood up for a lot of artists when Apple Music was trying to get them to lowball them a little bit on the on on their feet. But it was also that you know you kind of don't want to side against Taylor Swift most of the time because she's it's still one of the most popular and um, uh, and powerful people in any entertainment field. Period. Um, so you have all of these artists like uh, Justin Bieber, um, Sha- uh, uh, Demi Lovato, and, and Selena Gomez, and, and Sia, and Lady Gaga. They're all coming out on either side, whatever side they, they want to do. Because sometimes this fight, like most fights, it goes deeper. It's not necessarily that big machine sold Taylor Swift's masters, but people are now making it out to be, this is just yet another example of male dominance mm. in, of the music industry fighting always and not giving what female artists want out of this. And that's, so it's taking a little bit of a, of a life on their own right now. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, I know we might consider them first world problems, but th- this is their livelihood. I mean, it, it, it is. is. Absolutely their livelihood. I know, I know artists that had massive hits in the 80s and 90s and are still in debt to their record labels, and therefore they will never own their massive recordings. And, you know, when you go through a lot of, a lot of things, there's always a great deal of people who never own their ownership of their work. You know, actors and actresses certainly don't. Um, that's up to, you know, the director or the producer. Most authors don't own the you know their ownership of the book sometimes they have to give that up in order to get that book deal i mean it just all depends sometimes on how bad you want that record deal or that book publishing deal sometimes you have you have to you have to give them something in order to get them to sign you and have that risk being taken away and taylor swift's masters are certainly worth you know tens of millions of dollars over the next couple of decades 
Yeah, I, I mean, I'd, I had more to ask you, but we're short on time here. We'll, we'll have to do it again. <laughs> Eric Alper, genius Eric Alper, publicist, music commentator, and content creator. Thanks so much for this. I, I am. I know things now that I didn't before I spoke to you. That's all. That's all I'm after. <laughs> great. Always great to talk to you anytime. All right, take care. Yeah, that whole world. I, I, lo- I mean, I don't know. I, I love that inner, inner fighting stuff. I like the drama of the entertainment business. I, I'm, I'm into it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Walkability is one of these things. And I, I know it sounds like, you know, maybe something that you're not going to put a lot of emphasis on. When I'm finding a place, I am always going to a place like WalkScore, putting in the address, finding the walkability, because I don't want to have to drive everywhere. And that's why I live downtown here in Hamilton, so I can walk places. And uh, that brings us to Jeff Speck, who's been advocating for walkability for the past 25 years, and in his new book, Walkability City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Places Better. And Jeff joins us now. Hey, Jeff. Hey, pleasure to join you, Anthony. Yeah, you know, walkability again. Like it's, I know it's, it sounds simple, but is it as simple as just, hey, here's an address, here's how close you are to certain amenities? Um, that's actually a flaw in the walk score algorithm. Hmm. Um, the funny thing about walk score is it's, it's really not a very good algorithm, but it happens to work very well anyway. All, all that walk score really measures is what you're near, right? So it doesn't measure. Um, whether you feel safe walking, it doesn't measure what you know whether you're going to get hit by a car. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't doesn't measure whether the walk is interesting or comfortable. Any of those things. Um, it just so happens that the places in which we have a good mix of uses, you know, in which you're likely to have housing near shopping, near recreation, near schools, near work, that those also happen to be the places typically that were built mostly before World War II, um, when our countries. Uh, were organized not around the assumption that everyone was dr- everyone was going to drive everywhere. So um, even though it only measures one thing, um, it actually ends up being pretty accurate in terms of of telling you whether you're likely to be in a walkable place or not. So I know it sounds weird because it's walking, but does transit factor in ever? Oh, absolutely. You know, it doesn't, okay. it doesn't, I don't believe it factors into the uh, walk score uh, uh, algorithm. <laughs> but right. It, it, uh, it's a huge part of a walkable place. I always say, you know, you can have a perfectly walkable neighborhood without transit, but a walkable city relies tremendously on transit um, because if you can't connect the different walkable places together, then people who want that walking quality of life will be forced uh, to, to buy a car if they want to have access to the whole to the whole city. And, of course, people of means want to have access to the whole city, and uh, the city tends to get shaped, for better or worse, around people of means. Mm. It's an unfortunate condition globally, I'd say, particularly in South and Central America, where it's a bit preposterous because many fewer people own cars, but it is the people who own cars, um, who, or I should say, it is the people who have a choice whether to drive or not um, and, and make that decision that often uh, determine how our places get shaped over the decades and whether we end up being comfortable uh, walking or taking transit or, or getting around other ways. Well, and it's funny you bring up uh, means because even, you know, like I, I think I saw the last study I, I saw was that uh, 63% of millennials, for example, want to live in a place where they don't need a car. And that ties directly with the fact that a lot of millennials can't afford a car. And in that case, they need uh, more walkability. 
However, and I guess here's the challenge, what happens, you know, I know where we are here in Hamilton, for example, we're having a lot of discussions about transit and light rail transit and, um, you know, bike lanes and making things more pedestrian safety, uh, more pedestrian safe. But how do you work backwards? You know, a city that was built for cars, how do you now go back to making it more walkable? Well, the good thing about Hamilton, and I've been to Hamilton, is it, it wasn't built uh, initially around cars. Um, it has, like most North American cities, um, its fair share of surrounding suburbs that were built around cars. Um, but there's still an, an, an inner city, a downtown, and surrounding you know pre-war neighborhoods um, that are either pretty walkable already or have tremendous potential to be walkable because they're they were initially organized around that, you know, non-car dependent model. So how does it, I should have asked actually, are you based in like New England? Is it? So I'm based, I'm based in Brookline, Massachusetts, which yeah. is a very uh, close in, it's a suburb of Boston that's actually surrounded by Boston. Right. And out, out my front door in about 100 feet is a stop of the Green Line, which is a trolley that becomes a subway. Um, and it's an interesting place to live because you're kind of on this cusp of urban and suburban. Um, most people who live in Brookline who, who can afford a car uh, do. However, the typical family here has closer to one car, whereas, you know, further out, the typical family has two or more. Right. And what brought you to Hamilton? Uh, I was in Hamilton, geez, it was probably 20 years ago, working on a design for a property um, that like about half the things that planners do uh, never never occurred. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> but you got paid for it, right? I was well paid. There you go. That's, that's a, you know, <laughs> you know, it was it wasn't a total loss. Uh, Jeff Speck is with us, city planner. Also, are you currently a city planner? Yeah, I'm a city planner, uh, trained as an architect, and it's funny you said I've been fighting for walkability for twenty twenty five years. Um, in fact, it's it's only in the recent decade or so that we started to call what we do walkability right you know first we called it first we called it traditional city planning in contrast with modern suburban sprawl so we called it traditional city planning then we called it the new the new urbanism which mm-hmm. is a movement you're probably aware of um and, and we, that we uh, created about 25 years ago um and it's really just best practices in city planning but none of that really is very catchy and and kind of my discovery um if i can take credit for anything um, my discovery was realizing that when you reframe it under the, the rubric of walkability, not only is it much easier to um, explain and, and to convince people uh, what to do, but it also allows you to make better decisions. Like if, if walking becomes your metric um, and you measure your, your success by how well you do in that metric, then you just make better places in every way. Yeah, and is it, you know, what did, how do you make, when we talk about safety and pedestrian safety, and yeah, there are things around you, but how do, how do we make it safer to walk there? Is it, I, I mean, I can think of some simple things like reducing speed and maybe more stop signs. I, I mean, is there something that is maybe outside the box a little bit, something that city planners have kind of realized recently? Like, hey, maybe this would work better in terms of making the street safer. Uh, you know, there's about 50 different items. And when I give shows in communities, and I travel around the world, uh, next week I'm in Chile, mm. I travel around the world giving my shows about how to make communities more walkable. And, of course, safety is just one part of it. I talk about how we need to make walking um, more useful, uh, more comfortable, and more interesting, as well as more safe. Mm. But safety is usually the thing you can fix quickly. 
and the cheapest and the thing which which cities which are a typical you know client um, have the capacity to fix most quickly because they control the streets so um, there's a lot of bigger picture things I could talk to you about like like bike infrastructure but it's funny how every year we learn something different so I think last year was the year that I learned that when you remove the center line from a two-way street people drive seven miles an hour slower so there was a little trick <laughs> okay it's interesting <laughs> the year, yeah the, yeah a couple years before i learned that when you replace a uh a signalized intersection with a four-way stop sign or an all-way stop sign your severe crashes will drop by about 67 percent. so there's all these tricks a classic thing which might have happened in hamilton i don't know i, I know it has been done many times in toronto is uh when you turn a four-laner right? Two lanes in each direction. When you turn a four-laner into a three-laner where the center lane is a turn lane, um, you reduce crashes precipitously, and surprisingly, you do not reduce capacity. So that... Four-lane streets are, are notoriously inefficient. Yeah, so it's... A, when you it's, make four-lane three, you, you actually don't slow people down, but you, you lower the, the crashes. That's the big, you know, because this is a debate that happens here all the time is, you know, adding bike lanes and adding more parking spots, meaning eliminating lanes and people saying, well, great, it's just going to be more congestion. And I've been, you know, I've been seeing a lot of research on this. That's not the case. It's, I don't know if there's an explanation for it, but reducing lanes actually just kind of keeps traffic the same, if anything. There is a very clear explanation for it and a lot of, a lot of theory behind it and a lot of data behind it. Uh, the data shows very clearly that when you, for example, um, increase the capacity on a roadway or a highway, uh, that 40% of that new capacity is taken up by new trips immediately, and within four years, 100% of it is taken up by new trips on average. But the, the, the theory goes like this, and it's, it's a, the, the operative sentence is that in congested systems, the principal constraint to driving is congestion. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? What's, what's keeping you from commuting exactly on peak you know, if you're in a congested city? And, and what's your principal punishment for driving, typically? It's the very congestion that you have to face. Mm-hmm. So that when you do anything that reduces congestion, people's behaviors change. They might move further from work. They might uh, you know, start commuting right on peak. Um, they make different choices, and voila, um, you know, the, the road gets crowded again. The, the the classic phrase is that uh, adding lanes to fight congestion is like loosening your belt to fight obesity. Mm-hmm. But um, what's interesting is it works in reverse, too. So where freeways have come down, like the Embarcadero Freeway in, in uh, San Francisco or the West Side Freeway in New York City, when freeways come down, everyone predicts some sort of Carmageddon where uh, the traffic will be at, at gridlock, and that's never, ever happened. Wow. Yeah, and I guess people just well, and it's in Hamilton specifically with talk of LRT going on one of our main roads. You know, the the fear is, oh, great, it's just going to add congestion to this road or this road or this road. Uh, but is it just some people just might take a different way, or maybe they end up using the LRT? Or it's it's not as simple as less roads means more congestion is basically what you're saying. Well, there's you know there might be congestion for a week as people get used to it, mm-hmm. um, and then maybe some people will see the bus moving at three times the speed of the cars and they might jump you know jump on the on the bus right. um it's important to realize that that you know in in our societies in which we've chosen to separate things from each other and jobs are often far from home and um you know everything is a trip away um mobility equals wealth and the question is how many people can you move for the least about amount of money as efficiently as possible 
and as quickly as possible. And if your goal becomes moving people as opposed to moving vehicles, um, there's tremendous efficiencies and opportunities to increase your society's wealth by getting them on buses. <laughs> so, right. you know, and, and Enrique Peñalosa, the famous mayor of Bogota, um, says that the sign of an advanced nation isn't that the poor people have cars, but that the rich, rich people take transit. <laughs> oh, wow. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so how how does the walk ability, and I know it's a term we're throwing around a lot, but it, it's easy to say and it's kind of fun, um, but how does it actually improve um, economies of the cities that they're implementing? Well, I, I think it's, it's, if I get a little bit abstract, um, the more walkable your city is, the more transit-oriented it is, the denser it can be, the more, um, you know, closeness you can have between people. Uh, the more opportunities for encounters, the more exchange of ideas. Um, the higher the population density in your city, the more patents are created per capita, hmm. not just per mile, but per capita. So generally, you know, we come together in cities for a reason. You know, cities exist for a reason, and that is to maximize our kind of economic energy. And what maximizes that energy is the density of people and ideas. And when you design around the automobile, you're necessarily spreading everything out around the geometry of the automobile. You know, a single L train in New York City carries as many people into New York each day as 2,000 cars. So, you know, do the math. <laughs> right. I won't do the math, so I'm not good at it. But, uh, but no, I, I definitely understand your point. And so are there, are there examples of cities that have just gotten it right that you kind of use as an example? Well, you're going to hate me. Uh, I'd say Vancouver and then Toronto on its heels. I'm okay um, with Vancouver. I'm not crazy, but but see, Toronto seems uh, still kind of hectic. Like the commute to Toronto is terrible, but you're saying living in the city, um, it's just very walkable. Well, the the driving commute is terrible. And by the way, I, I, it was not lost on me that right before you introduced me, there was a um, traffic uh, uh, report sponsored by Mazda. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, um, you know, the 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 any the, the more walkable you make a place, the more people are going to want to drive to it. Right. And the most successful transit places in America also have the worst traffic. It isn't that good transit causes traffic; it's that good transit causes economic energy that attracts tra traffic. And unless you have congestion pricing, which no city in North America has yet, except soon New York. Um, what's congestion pricing? That actually, sorry. Well, what's congestion pricing? Congestion pricing is tolls that reflect the value of the drive. So at busier times of day, the tolls are higher. At less busy times of day, they're lower. Okay. Um, when cities like London or Stockholm have introduced serious tolling around getting into the inner city, um, it's created tremendous gains in transit efficiency, in bicycling uh, you know, success, and all these other things. But unless you've, unless you've got that, um, then people are going to try to drive to your wonderful transit-served place. Um, a great piece of data is that people in in Toronto use one quarter as much gas as people in gasoline as people in Atlanta, hmm. and they use five times as much gasoline as people in Hong Kong. So you know the the way that we get around is very much a function of our um, of the way we've designed our transportation systems. Um, it's it's really surprising how different cities can be from each other and the choices we can make. Uh, a, a real surprising thing is the more congested a city is, the less uh, pollution per capita there is. And you're sitting on a street and saying, 
you know, you're seeing the, the air waver from the hot exhaust of all those cars that you're stuck in traffic behind, and you're like, this congestion must be a complete environmental disaster. But then you look at different cities around North America, and the ones that have the least congestion have the most per capita uh, carbon uh, emissions because people are driving a lot more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's actually fascinating. But Vancouver's done a tremendous job of coupling great, uh, you know, good transit with um, actually excellent transit with uh, good bike facilities that are getting better and better, but then super importantly, having a lot of density in housing uh, in, the, in the city core. So people work downtown, but they also live downtown. And then they've connected, you know, particularly in Vancouver, they're, grow- they're growing suburbs outside of the city, but they're on transit and they're quite dense and walkable around those transit stops. All right, Jeff Speck, I know you got to get going. Um, you are passionate about this. I think, I think that's what I'm enjoying the most here. Well, I mean, it's it's funny because I started out thinking I would just be an architect, and actually I thought my career would be designing bathrooms for the very rich, which I was kind of looking forward to. <laughs> but um, this is just so much more more uh, you know exciting and influential in the way people live their lives. And if you're interested in the in the intersection between design and society, um, you know, you look at city planning and, and see what you can do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Jeff Speck, uh, the book is Walkable City Rules, 101 Steps to Making Better Places. Um, anywhere else we can find your work? Well, my, you know, my book, Walkable City Rules, is very much for people who are kind of in the trenches doing the work. But I've got a book that came out five years ago that was a bestseller just called Walkable City. Okay, for perfect. People who are interested... People who are interested in this subject uh, and or want to convince others to be interested in it, Walkable City has been a great tool for um, swaying the tide in, in, in uh, communities. Awesome. All right, Jeff, enjoy the rest of your day, and thanks so much for doing this. Hey, thanks for your interest in this topic. Absolutely. All right, Jeff Speck, that was fun. He's way into city planning. I love that. Um, I, yeah, you know, the thing, I've had this argument with people before, and I can't even, my issue is that, Whenever I know that I've heard and I know that it's a fact that when you reduce lanes and, you know, like we're talking about doing here by maybe making, you know, well, not maybe making main two way and then putting LRT on King and people saying, wow, it's just the traffic, the traffic, the traffic. And I just I know that I've been told and I've read that it actually does not increase traffic. It stays the same, sometimes minimizes it, but I never have. I'm never able to present the facts. I just know I've read it somewhere by people that know. And uh, there's Jeff Speck laying it out there. It's fact. It's it's science, I think, engineering science. Um, yeah, it's, it's you know, the city is, and again, I live downtown, and it is walkable in a sense, but, and Will, I don't know if you're in the same boat, if you're a walker or a transport transit user i i am a uh forever altered walker apparently my judgment of distance is way off and everyone complains that i'm always like oh we can just walk over there and it's like five blocks yeah Yeah. but and don't you feel like i living downtown and walking on like i you know i love going down to jackson to the the movie theater there and i'm walking there and walking on main street is terrifying to me it's just, I feel like I'm in, it's like a racetrack sometimes. It's just, there's so many cars all going in the same direction. And I wish that would, I, there's a way, I don't, do you, do you reduce lanes? Do you make it two way? I don't know what the answer is. It's way out of my spectrum of knowledge. Uh, but I am terrified on that street sometimes. And I can't imagine riding a bike on that street. 
Yeah, I get that. And I mean, obviously, I think we know which books we have to read if we want to understand yeah. this more. Walkable, walkable City. That's the book we got to get to. Yeah. But it, I, I feel like it's because some of those lanes all of a sudden get taken up or all of a sudden turn into you have to turn onto this one-way street. People drive faster because they're stressed, so they're trying to get past the other guy. And then, yeah, that just... Or oh, they're trying ups- to beat cameras, Trying right? to beat... Oh, that too. Yep. Yeah. And and as you say, it stresses you out, and you're on the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Presumably, this, you're nowhere near an automobile. This intersection here, the main and Dundurn one, me getting out of here and trying to get home is absolute. People are merging. People are merging from both sides, and they got to get to the light and try to get to Fortinos or Tim Hortons or whatever it is. I don't know how there aren't. I know it's a high accident area, but I'm, I don't know how there aren't more. I don't see them every day. It's chaos down there. Uh, all right, we got to go. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson podcast available on Apple podcast and Google podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson and thanks for listening.